During some summer months, I've decided to uh, preach a series of sermons based on a particular book or particular character, and this summer is no exception. It was an easy decision, really, as I looked at the lectionary text, I saw that the Gospel of Luke was the Gospel lectionary for the month beginning in June all the way through October, and since the Gospel itself is such a powerful Gospel to us, uh, it is an opportunity for us to go walking through that Gospel, not consecutively through story after story, but in a way that those stories will connect, even if you are not here every Sunday, you will still feel connected to the gospel, and I commend that gospel to your reading this summer as we move along through it. The gospel of Luke was written, really, with some access to Mark, the first gospel written, as well as what they call Q source, a gospel uh, source that was around but not publicized. Also, Luke had access to the stories that were told by word of mouth. And being a gospel, Luke put all of those stories and his resources together to frame a particular gospel story. That is to say, it's not meant to be a history so much as it's meant to be meant to be a proclamation, really a large sermon that speaks to the context and the church and as well the understanding of who God is and who Jesus is at the time of his writing. That gospel, as we know, has been handed down along with the other three Gospels, uh, to us and part of our canon. Uh, from that, I will read this morning, beginning in the first verse of the seventh chapter. The story picks up right after Jesus has preached what is, in Luke, Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew, Jesus goes up to a mountain and begins to preach, Blessed are the weak, blessed are those who mourn, Blessed are those who are persecuted. In Luke, it's not on a mountaintop, but on a plain, a level place that Jesus has this sermon. And after that sermon, our passage picks up saying, After Jesus had finished all his sayings, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. That was Peter's hometown. A centurion there had a slave whom he valued highly, and who was ill and close to death. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and heal his slave. When they came to Jesus, they appealed to him earnestly, saying, He is worthy of having you do this for him, for he loves our people, and it is he who built our synagogue for us. And Jesus went with them. But when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But only speak the word and let my servant be healed. For I also am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. 
case uh, <clears throat> can be made that life, for us humans at least, can be divided between those who sinned and those who are sent. Those who sinned are in powerful positions because of birthright or money or vocation or military hierarchy, and their job is to send their people versus those who are sent as the people are called to go when they are sent. And of course, if we were choosing, we would choose to be on the side of those who sin rather than those who are sent, I suspect, because those who sin seem to be on the top of the food chain. They have great authority. And in the Bible, there are people sending and being sent all the time, not always for the best reasons. If you read the story of King David in 2 Samuel, you will see that that story begins, the story we know of David and Bathsheba, that it was in the spring of the year, the time when kings went out to do battle. But instead, David sent his army to do battle while David stayed at home. And one night while he was walking on the rooftops, he saw a woman lying and bathing herself, and so he sent his people to find out who she was. And when he found out who she was, he sent his people to bring her back to his house. And he lied, he, he lay with her. Paradoxically, or ironically, a month or so later, Bathsheba sends word back to David that she is with child. And so David, being a sender, sends people to get Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, from the field of battle and bring him home in hopes that David could coax him into lying with Bathsheba. Therefore, Uriah would think the child was his. Only Uriah had too much honor to lie with his wife while his comrades were in battle, and so he refused. David had no other choice then to send Uriah back into battle, knowing that where he was being sent would certainly kill him. David was a sender. I knew a man in Atlanta, he was a member of our church, who was also such a sender. I visited him one day in his office in the, hot, the top story of one of those stark midtown skyscrapers. We sat down in his luxurious office, and he had always been quite generous to the church, and to tell you the truth, I was a little bit intimidated. I was, I was there because he had sent for me to talk about stewardship. While there, he pushed a button, and, and his uh, secretary answered, Yes, sir. Uh, Mrs. Jackson, would you please bring me the Smith file that I've been working on, if you don't mind? And she came in immediately. And while there, he said, By the way, would you take those shoes that I put at your desk and send them out so that they can be resold? Absolutely, she said, and then left. And I said, Man, what is it like to be able to have such power that you could push a button and People do your bit. I can't even get my dog Yates to sit. And you've got all these people that are coming and going when you send them. What's that like? And he said, well, i got to tell you, power is not all it's cranked up to be. In the first place, I don't have any power over my own family. And in the second place, there is so much need in the world. If I could only push a button and send somebody to fix that. That would satisfy me. After I left his office, I was really impressed with this man's power, with his 
sending ability and with his incredible generosity at the same time. I was grateful for him. He was a sender. This morning's passage is also about the sender. We are told he is a centurion, that is, if you've ever seen a picture of a Roman soldier, it's probably a centurion. He has on a brass helmet and a plume of horse hair sticking up from it. You've seen the pictures. A metal chest plate, his giant sword on his left side, unlike a normal soldier. He was the most agile, the most uh, trained, well-trained, the most focused, and also probably the largest human specimen in the Roman army. He was the Navy SEAL of the Roman Legion. This centurion was used to sending. He had over 80 or 90 soldiers under his uh, office, as well as many other servants. And besides that, the story says he's a slave owner. Clearly, this man knew how to send. And I gotta say, to be honest, when I read this passage, my sentiment was not with him. I would have been brought up all my life to pull for the underdog, not to pull for those who have all the power. And as I read this story, here is this man who is overseeing this, this state of Israel that the Romans' army had oppressed, sitting in the big house with the power, doing his bidding, as he said to Jesus through his prayers, I say go, and they go, and I say come, and they come, and I say to my slave, do this, and my slave does this. So my sentiment was not with him. Besides that, I, I went to seminary, in a mainline seminary, that sort of taught, they wouldn't come out and say so, but they, they sort of taught that the main theme in the Bible, and especially through the Gospels, is that God is on the side of the poor and the lowly, and the last, and the least, and the dispossessed. As I see this man in contradistinction to the, to the people who are being sent, I, I just had, I had trouble seeing him as anything but the villain. And then I read the story again. I was surprised. I mean, Luke's gospel. Luke. Luke's gospel. Who starts out with Mary receiving word from the angel, lifting up her song in the Magnificat, singing, He has shown strength with his arm, who has scattered the proud and brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. Luke's gospel that when Jesus is born, the angels come to announce the news to the lowly shepherds, the lowest level on the vocational food chain. Luke's gospel, who when Jesus came to deliver his first sermon in his home church, opened up the Bible in Isaiah 61 and began to preach, I bring good news to the poor, proclaim the release to the captives and let the oppressed go free. Luke's Gospel, who obviously has a very soft place for the poor. In the Sermon on the Plain, when Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit, Luke says, blessed are the poor. And later, when Luke opens up his woes, he says, woe to the rich. Not rich in spirit, woe to... So Luke's Gospel... No sooner did Jesus get the words out in the Sermon on the Mount than Luke has in this gospel story, this story of this powerful, 
man who has slaves and has, has authority over the oppressed. And Jesus says the most amazing thing. He says that he, in all of Israel, he has shown more faith than anyone else. It doesn't, it doesn't die. It doesn't, it, it, it completely reverses the whole understanding that Luke seemed to have been painting up to that point. He turns it all up side down. When the friends came to Jesus at the centurion's request, they said to him, he has a slave who is ill. He has sent for all of the physicians and healers. He is now sending for you because word has come to us that you too heal. And they said to Jesus, he is a worthy man because he has loved us even though he is in the Roman army and he has helped build our synagogue. And Jesus simply goes with them. Right before he got to the house, the centurion apparently had a change of heart. And so he sends his friends to Jesus on the way and says to him, Stop. Do not come to my house, for I am not worthy to receive you. Apparently the centurion knew that the Jewish law said that if a rabbi or a priest entered the house of a Gentile, that they would be ritually unpure for a length of time. And so the centurion had the love of Jesus in his mind, even over the healing of his beloved slave. And then the centurion said, all you need to do is speak the word. And Jesus, hearing that, was amazed, saying, that, my friends, is more faith than any I have seen in all of Israel. It blows you away when you read these texts. You've read them over, well, I have at least, dozens of times that I've never seen before until I looked at it this time, how deeply Luke lifts up the grace given to this man of power and strength. In counter-distinction, in juxtaposition to the poor and the lowly and the downcast, of whom Luke is also clear, receives God's mercy. Now this is a radical response, I admit. The greatest example of faith in all of Israel. And I think it was, it was made because in this man, Jesus saw a man of great power with a contrite and humble heart and a sense of deep compassion and consideration for those around him. He had invited Jesus, and yet he changed his mind. This passage strikes me because in the mainline church especially, but not only, we sometimes have a tendency to become a little self-righteous in our progressive viewpoint. The seminaries that we go to tend to point toward a more progressive form of theology and social justice. And, and I'm struck in, in reading this that, you know, maybe we've developed our own sense of self-righteousness in all that. How many times I've heard my good religious 
minister types say disparaging things about people that they don't agree with politically or about powerful people. They could do more. They don't do enough. Look at how they run things. Then this text holds up for us a whole new lens to view. And that lens reminds us that our own, excuse me, liberal self-righteousness is in itself riches in the bad sense of the term. It's there when we're not even aware of it. A friend of mine who was uh, one of the homeless advocates in Atlanta was invited to my church a while back. He came early and sat down. He didn't like to participate in mainline congregations, although we contributed to his nonprofit. He always said he had some sense of resentment about the wealth and the power that he saw there when he was struggling so hard just to try to get the bills paid, to get two nickels together. So we sat down in one of the pews, and soon a family came and sat down in front of him, a man and his wife and three girls. And immediately he noticed that when the man put his arm out to go around his wife's shoulders, that the man had a really nice cashmere coat on. And as his sleeve came out from under the coat, he noticed that he had English cuffs with his monogram on the cuffs and silver cufflinks. And as it came out further, he noticed that the man had a Rolex watch on his arm. My friend said, I got more and more resentful sitting behind that wealthy, powerful man in your church. I could hardly stay still. And then I called forward for the concerns this family that was sitting in front of them, and they walked up, they wanted to make an announcement. And as they turned around, one of the girls they were with had a horribly disfigured hair lip face. And it turns out that this family had heard about her and on their own dime had flown her to Atlanta to perform the operation to repair it and that this child was going to stay in their house for two or three months. And the family was simply up there to ask for prayers for this child and for all the other children in the church to come and play with this child after she started feeling better. My friend, of course, emailed me of his own contrition. He was busted. There he had sat in his own biased self-righteousness, judging this family when all of a sudden the tables turned and he saw himself as he really is. Jesus says people will come from east and from west and from north and from south and sit at the table of God. The rich and the poor So be it. Amen. Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labor.